0: Welcome to Law Firm, Movers and Shakers, a show where we interview firm owners, talk about their journey, and share their knowledge across social media. I'm Joe Bravo, Senior Brand Ambassador to Get Stepped Up, and your podcast host. Here at Get Stepped Up, we help people delegate their weight to freedom. You can achieve more by doing less, and I know that in order for your business to grow, you need the right people with you. So stick around. And I'll tell you how you can be a guest in our 15-minute show. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Law Room Movers and Shakers. Today's guest is Deborah Whitson. Deborah, thank you very much for joining us. Can you tell people a little bit about yourself, about where you are, your line of
1: work? Sure, thanks Joe, so nice to be here. So um, yeah, I am an attorney, mediator, a certified divorce specialist, and a law firm owner in um, Elizabethtown, New York, which is situated right in the beautiful Adirondack Park of upstate New York, very close to the Canadian border. Um, And I've been a lawyer for 29 years now. And my law firm is a boutique family law firm offering um, all sorts of family law, divorce, custody um, services, Mm-hmm. Including mediation and collaboration as alternatives to the traditional courtroom-based uh, ways of handling those types of family matters.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. So I got to start with saying twenty-nine years. That's a, that's a grown adult. Like that. That's <laughs> wow. Uh, <laughs> what, how did that journey start? Like let, let's let's begin with how, why did you want
1: to become a lawyer? So my journey started with a desire to be a criminal prosecutor, and that grew up from a very tragic event. Um, I grew up in a, a small town, um, a very tight-knit community, and my brother's best friend was um, murdered while uh, we were in high school. And the case had some interesting legal twists and turns to the point where it looked like the perpetrator um, might be uh let off on a technicality. I was 14 at the time, and I thought that uh, I followed the case very closely because it was so personal to our family and our community, but I found that um, it's fascinating that there are these legal protections in our system so that uh, even people who might be clearly guilty, might not be held accountable. So I thought that maybe that was a a flaw in the system and the system was broken. And I was determined at age 14 to go to law school, become a lawyer and become a prosecutor and fix it. Um, by the time I got to law school, I knew the system wasn't broken. The system is the system in the U.S. Um, because it's, it uh, is important to have those sort of protections. But I actually did start my career in criminal prosecution. And that's where I spent the first 10 years of my legal career.
0: <clears throat> okay, so Sorry about
1: my voice. I'm
0: going to take a drink. of water. So I imagine as a prosecutor, you must have seen a lot of things. I don't know. What, what was it? <laughs> That because okay so let me start it from my perspective and it's something that I've noticed uh, both in 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 many different lawyers uh, criminal law it, it tends to be very attractive by many different reasons but a lot of people start there and then suddenly realize that their calling is someplace else uh, mm-hmm. so ten years in what made you want to switch to family law
1: so I was um uh. uh special victims prosecutor for most of the time that I worked in the district attorney's office. And so I was working with victims of domestic violence, of sexual assault, um, child abuse victims. And um, I developed a real passion for um, working with people in those situations. And, um, you know, government work is a great training ground, but there are limitations and lots of formalities and working for the government so i felt that i could do more to help reach more people and help more people with the skills that i had developed by getting out of government and going into private practice and so family law was a natural um, sort of transition because i had been working with um, largely women and and children who were victims of crimes
0: Mm -hmm. you know More and more uh, people, sometimes people ask me, why do you admire the lawyer profession? But more and more, I'm starting to see, at least I've had the luck that whenever I get to interview someone in your position, their calling is to help. There's a deep and meaningful reason why they became a lawyer. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's because I wanted to chase after the money and the lawyer lifestyle and all that. But then other times you find out that there's people that have this, very deep calling and this necessity to help others. And that's something that allows you to grow. So I've heard this journey of people uh, saying, okay, if I help out just one person, then my entire law career is worth it. Mm -hmm. And if I'm able to make an income out of that, then it's also worth it. Now, you've been doing this, you've been helping people in a very difficult uh, area of law during 10 years. And then you moved on to something that's faster, that's more yours. That's the, the, the private sector. Uh, would you say that your calling is to help people or what would that be?
1: So um, obviously I think the, the legal profession, maybe we don't always have the best reputation, but we are you know, really in a helping profession. But from my perspective, um, what sort of gets me going and I think what uses my natural innate abilities the most is um, finding new ways to solve problems and um so when a client presents uh, an interesting uh, legal situation um you know my mind just starts raising: um how can i approach this in a new way how can i help this client achieve their goals and get the best results um by not necessarily always following the traditional path and that is what led me ultimately to really start to i had a paradigm shift. That, um courts are necessary in criminal cases, but in family law cases, courts can do more harm often than good. Um, And I find that it's very disempowering for families to have a stranger in a black robe making important decisions about their children and their finances and their future. So um, I... You know, after a few years of walking my family client, family law clients to the courthouse all the time, I um, really started to become more interested and educated about mediation and collaborative uh, law. And uh, found that that is an area that I'm um, incredibly passionate about. And a lot of people, you know, a lot of consumers don't know that those alternatives are out there. So um, my messaging is you know, avoid the courthouse at all costs, if you can, in your family law situation. And that's a funny thing for a lawyer to be telling people. Um, but I find that I get a lot more satisfaction and the clients are more satisfied and their results are more gratifying if they can avoid the bitter warfare. Um, cause really that just makes everybody's life worse, uh, as a practitioner, that's not fun for me either. <laughs> and, um, it tends to be the most expensive alternative for people. And I don't get any gratification of helping people drain their bank accounts while they're going through an already difficult um, emotional and financial transition as a family. So um, I've become uh, a real impassioned messenger about there's a better way to do this. There's a better way to break up. And that's what we really try to impress upon our clients and try to get them to be um find peaceful, out-of-court resolutions to their problems um, and, and get better outcomes in the end.
0: That's very nice because. I don't know that that rep that you talked about that sometimes lawyers get a reputation for being one or the other mm-hmm. um, i don't know if it's hollywood or if it's uh, netflix or tv the the, the, the characters that, that that they try to envision of how lawyers should be but like if you're cutthroat all the time when you go to trial when you start a fight what a way to escalate a situation when you mm-hmm. can actually settle you can negotiate outside of that you can Save yourself years and years of legal battles, and of course, that's very weird for some lawyers because, yeah, that's a lawyer that doesn't want to drain your bank account and uh, want mm-hmm. to make all of my money just out of your uh, well-being. So, I really appreciate the fact that you like mediating and negotiating. So, let me dig into that a little bit. What does it take for someone to become, uh, let's not say a strong negotiator, because it's not like that. It's not cutthroat. It's An effective, what does it take to become an effective mediator in this type of cases?
1: So an effective mediator um, requires a couple of key skills, but in in terms of the question that you asked, I think it's um, really important to get people to understand that they can both walk away with a lot of what they want and a lot of what they need if they compromise and they're focused on values and um, rather than positions. And what I mean by that is, um, you know, you can walk into any kind of negotiation or meeting and say, um, my position is I must have this. Um, I must get the house. I must not, uh, I want to keep all of my retirement and pension and I don't want to share it with my former spouse. So those are positions. If you, if I can get the parties to think in terms of values, so, is the desire to keep the house serving some greater purpose? Let's understand what that's about. So, if you get somebody to get underneath the position to what values it's supporting. Maybe it's not even supporting their values, but if they can articulate that, I want the house because I don't want the children to have another disruption in their life when their family is separating or or divorcing. So the, the house then becomes stability. So then you can explore with the person, are there other ways you can promote stability for your children that don't necessarily mean you have to stay in the house? Um, What does stability mean for you? What does that look like for your children? So when you get to that level of what are the values that these outcomes are serving or not serving, I think people find that there is ways that they can each, they can divide things up where each person's values are supported. um, And everybody walks out with something, uh, you know, the most important things that they want. Um, and they compromise on the things that didn't serve their values. And so it wasn't hard to give those up. So it's really getting underneath to understand the motivations and what people's, you know, view for their future um, is. And, you know, to try to get them off of the nuts and bolts of, I I want the the IRA account. <laughs> or I don't want, I don't want the new girlfriend living in my house. So I have to keep the house, you know? So if you get people off of those sorts of really um, firmly held positions that maybe in the end, when you say, well, what what is your life after this process? Um, What what does it look like for you? What is your vision for your future? You can get them to see that some of the things they think they're fighting for are really not advancing their interests.
0: It's like understanding the principle behind the position that they have so mm-hmm. that you need to be very well at questioning someone without being invasive and at the same time be a very good listener because if you're not a good listener they're not going to open up to you mm-hmm. uh, yeah. so do you do this uh, i imagine you do this with other lawyers across the table or would you usually take a couple that just is seeking for a peaceful separation like how do you promote this type of service besides of course uh, putting it out there on on different social media and outlets
1: Yeah, well, I certainly do a lot of public awareness and education about these alternatives um, and why I feel it serves people's um, interests much better, but um, it's been hard in my area to convince other lawyers that this way is better. I think many lawyers feel that the expensive litigation pads their um, revenues and that kind of thing. Um, personally and professionally, I'm at a point where I would rather help, you know, do 100 efficient mediations than one three-year litigation <laughs> um you know uh, so then i'm helping more people and i'm making the same amount of money with greater professional satisfaction so I'm, i also send that message to other professionals you know obviously we're targeting our um, potential client base with the messaging about there's a better way to approach your breakup um but getting other professionals to embrace these modalities is also important to, you know, create a community of professionals who are willing to support families and using these alternatives. So, yes, yeah, sometimes mediators and um, uh, have, you know, the lawyers sitting with the parties while they're they're mediating. <clears throat> There's a model for divorce called collaborative divorce, where you have two specially trained collaborative attorneys and then the husband and the wife, and everybody commits to staying out of court and um, going through a a civil, respectful, structured process of negotiation. So there, the collaborative attorneys aren't mediators, but they're facilitators in a process where everybody agrees to put all the cards on the table, share all the financial information, and have open discussions. And in that model, sometimes um, there's a, a divorce coach who's working with the parties so that they can come to the collaborative meetings with their best self present. They can prepare a little bit mentally about what to expect, come in with a frame of mind of um, being willing to be open to options, to be willing to be creative about developing options or solutions that maybe are not traditional or are not the most obvious for families. So um, that, that model is a really useful model um, because you have the support of an attorney in your camp, but the attorney is committing to keeping you out of court. Um, and it's actually prohibited in collaborative divorce um, proceedings to threaten litigation. So you can't say, if you don't accept this offer, then I'm going to go start a divorce action like that's so out of bounds. So the idea is We're all going to come together in as many meetings as possible to see if we can solve all these issues and get people to reach an agreement and come up with a settlement on everything they need to settle to stay completely out of uh, court for their divorce process
0: now you know the reason i ask this is because i'm trying to get a picture of your practice and the evolution of your practice you've been 29 years of experience, right now what came to mind is you must have a very beautiful experience about how things were and how things are right now. And your perspective on how to solve something, how to deescalate that, I'm wondering, when someone comes in with that, I wanna fight mentality, but at the same time, I wanna fight outside court, how do you usually deescalate? That? I imagine you you want you ask like, why do you wanna fight this? And then you start getting into the story. But how do you manage to get someone that's pretty much ready to go to a position where, okay, so maybe settling is the best?
1: So, you know, there's a lot. (laughs) It's a very good question. There's a lot that goes into that. And I think, unfortunately, um sometimes people have those family members and friends or co-workers that are out there you know go for the juggler, hire a pitbull attorney and rake that other person over the coals and um especially when there are children I I really do everything I can to try to um, get the person to see that warfare has always has collateral damage and if there there's, almost no way to keep your children completely out of it if you are going to launch on a path of warfare. So the children will be affected whether you think that they are kept out of it or not. They're, they're ultimately affected because now their parents are in warfare. Mm-hmm. So um, I just you know really try to, uh, to stress that very little good comes of that. And in all of the years I've been doing divorce and family law, what struck me and what led me to write a book about this and tell people you know there's eight million ways that you can do this without blowing up the house or burning down the house right so um there were so many instances in my career uh, as a family law attorney where when I when I had my very first uh, consultation with the client or first you know working session with a with a new divorce client um, at that very first opportunity, I'm already crafting settlement strategies and settlement options. So um, I'm taking out my pad and my pencil and I'm saying, okay, what do you what do you own? Who do you owe? What is your vision for shared parenting time? And, and those sorts of things. And I'm, we're penciling out a global settlement roadmap. And the number of times that I make an early settlement offer based on that initial impression of the case, that gets rejected. And then the case goes down the avenue of court and a year and a half, two years, two and a half years go by. Each party has spent $20,000, $30,000 on their legal fees. And they end up settling right on the eve of trial or the day of trial. They settle for almost exactly what my initial proposal was. And I think, you know, the insanity of that So they've now had a year and a half or two years of agony. They've got legal bills out the wazoo. Um, They've been, you know, stressed and anxious and um, all the things that go along with a protracted proceeding like that. And they settle for exactly what was envisioned in the first meeting. Um, And that's because there's really, um, there's a finite number of possibilities for how to divide things up you know, and the longer you've been married, the closer it is to 50, 50. (laughs) Um, So, you know, 50%, 49%, you know, 52%. It's so why fight over, Mm -hmm. over that, you know, you get to the point of diminishing returns. And if you're spending $30,000 to get $5,000 in gain, that's foolish. Why would you do that? Yeah.
0: doesn't make any sense. You know, I, I've always had sense. that question or, or, or that position where if we're going to fight about it. Let's sell it half and half <laughs> yeah. fights over. If we can't settle this, then let's go to the next option.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you know, I think sometimes people come in and they say on principle, you know, I'm going to fight on principle because I've been hurt. Um, you know, well, how much how much are you willing to pay for your broken heart, you know, or could you, you can just move on. You can just, set, you know, get this done, divide things up, keep your kids out of the fray and move on and heal and forgive and look forward, look future forward instead of trying to look back and punish somebody for some perceived wrong because everybody hurts in a divorce or breakup. It just is. Everybody hurts. Maybe that's so, the
0: that a mediator has and probably you're going to be able to tell me this better than mm-hmm. anybody being able to take someone out of the fight and start reasoning that if you do that it's going to hurt even more so what do you want to do you want this to be over tomorrow or do you want mm-hmm. this to be over three years so being able to talk some sense into that specific situation have you had a case where you have something like that that's very memorable to you
1: where I was uh, successfully able to talk them off that ledge.
0: Yeah, like the, <laughs> you you were betting almost like everything, okay, they're gonna go for a fight and then suddenly they, you pick up the phone and yeah, let's settle. Do you have any stories like that that are very memorable to or that left an impact in your career?
1: Um, I, there's a, a ton of them, but you know what I'm finding lately, which is fascinating to me, is a lot of my mediation clients end up pausing the divorce. I think that when they find that with some support and some help, that they can communicate effectively. So a lot of what I'm doing is sort of coaching effective communication, because let's be honest, a lot of times they got to the point of breaking up because the communication sucked. So if I can help them effectively communicate as part of the negotiation and mediation process, um, then uh, uh, my goal is to teach them or model that for them so that even when they walk out of mediation and they're settled, um, especially if they have to co-parent, that they've learned some skills that can help them moving forward to communicate more effectively. But I've had a rash of mediation clients who've actually gotten to the point of signing their marital separation and settlement agreement and then saying, you know what, hold up on the divorce action and they get back together and they reconcile because you know the process i think they can they see that they can work effectively together they can communicate effectively together um i always try to explore their values with them and i'll say wow it's amazing to me how similar you guys um are in the values that you hold for your raising your children or for the way you approach your finances or you know that kind of thing and then i think they start to think why are we breaking up yeah like that yeah yeah so that's wonderful i mean i i feel like um you know as a family law attorney i do adoptions and i sort of tongue-in-cheek say that that's my happiness side of the business because helping people break up it's tough you know it's emotional it's sad there's a grieving and a loss that goes along with that Mm -hmm. and sometimes anger and sometimes (laughs) elation you know all those things But with adoption, it's just to have, you. I'm building a family instead of breaking a family up, right? But it's been really interesting to see and for my staff too, that when we see lately, we've had three or four mediation couples who have been like, you know what, we're going to give another go at this. (laughs) And, um, you know, they have their separation agreement if it doesn't work out, but they've decided to try to make it a go. And I feel really good about that. So,
0: you know, I don't know if you're trained for this, or you just develop them. But it sounds to me like you have some strong therapist skills with you. Just,
1: <laughs> I think you have to sort of, um, I, I often say I'm, um, I'm an unlicensed, you know, mental health professional, <laughs> because it there's, it's just there. I mean, the divorce clients and the people going through custody um, uh, issues, you know, it's, it's emotional you know there's just no way around it they're they're emotional um and it goes with the territory so i have no training in it <laughs> just some experience i suppose but um it you know i think just for me i'm i'm just naturally empathetic um but i'm also pragmatic so i i think that i with many of my clients i can get to the point where i can say you know i understand how you're feeling But being stuck in that place, can you see how that's not helping you and stopping you from moving forward or, you know, um, that Uh, kind of thing?
0: So now now I get a better picture of how you started, where your practice was, and where your practice is. Where do you think you're going to be in 10 years from now?
1: I would love to have a community where... Almost nobody goes off to the courthouse. So to be fair, we still go off to the courthouse because um, in New York State anyway, um, collaboration and uh, mediation or even arbitration or other alternative dispute resolution models are voluntary. So both people have to agree. So we don't even have mandatory court referrals to mediation before a family court trial or a divorce trial. Um, So it takes two. And if you don't want to get in the sandbox and try to build that sandcastle together, then you can't build the sandcastle. So there's, unfortunately, many of our clients may want to stay out of court, but the other party is refusing. And and so we go off to court with them. But I would love to never step foot in a courthouse. I love, you know, the judges I work in front of are are great. I have great respect for them. I just don't think families should be having strangers make decisions for them.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I know. And. For some reason, what you're saying right now truly and deeply resonates to me. I don't know if it this happens to you, but to me, it resonates with the first years of your career. It's a very
1: mm-hmm.
0: very greedy aspect of one's life, finding that peaceful place again. And sometimes you need to fight it out. Sometimes mm-hmm. you do need the courts to decide you need a judge to present. You need all kinds of, of, of opinions, but sometimes you don't. So I imagine that a lot of what you did in the past, it must have prepared you for who you are today and who you're going to be in the future. I don't know if I'm hitting anywhere near the truth.
1: No, I think that's true. And I think that, um, you know, as a prosecutor, I had the unenviable duty to um, prosecute cases, even when the victim maybe wasn't so thrilled about testifying in open court about what had happened to him or her. Mm-hmm. And I took that into account in how I approached the case. But I also at the same time found in those settings that sometimes there was a need for somebody who had been victimized in a, in a crime of interpersonal violence in a sexual assault or a domestic violence case. There was a catharsis and a need to put out in the in the public forum you know, what had happened and see that the person was held accountable. But um, I also had times where I was sitting on the floor uh, in the district attorney's office trying to get a six-year-old to tell me wh- what they had endured um, as abuse. And I, we would be coloring together and I had my, you know, took off my high-heeled shoes and was sitting on the floor with a six-year-old trying to develop rapport with them. So, um I realize that for many people, there is a catharsis and sort of um, going through a process, but um, in the civil court system, uh, I really don't think that that you know, judges aren't interested in divorce cases and hearing about how you were emotionally harmed or wronged, you know, how you felt when you learned about the other party's affair. Or how you felt you weren't valued in the relationship. It's not the same. I mean, a criminal case is all about that sort of hurt. But in the divorce court, they're just going to try to get you divorced and divide up your stuff. Yeah. So you're not going to get that same sort of supportive um, interest or response in a civil case. Because civil case is just about money, really. Yeah. So, um, yeah there's other ways that people can have their healing and have their catharsis and stay out of court. And so that's what <laughs> I, really, I mean I, I appreciate that that's an important part of the process
0: mm-hmm. you know just that 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 image that you just painted of of you sitting on the floor being there in that moment, I imagine that some of those relationships, you create a very special bond with someone that's opening up like that to you, whether they're a child that suffered abuse or they're the victim, or they feel like a victim in a messy divorce, you do develop this very close relationship with someone and you want that part to be heard and you Mm -hmm. want that part to be respected. And for the courts not to take that into account, when at the same time, that's what hurts the most, it's one of those things that, Thank God there are ways to solve this outside of that, because if not, yeah, they divide up your stuff. But in the end, what you got, it doesn't represent who you are, but it does represent years and years of battling and and struggles and victories. So if you do or, or if you make a decision and you take it very lightly at that point, you might regret it for the rest of your life or at least for a couple of years while you build back up. So you need to be able to trust that person. And now I'm starting to see the type of lawyer that you are. I see you as someone that's, you are a very good listener and you do have therapist skills, (laughs) even if you develop them yourself. So I really like the fact that you're able to go outside of the conventional wisdom and then find something that's, suits pretty much everybody. Now, I have a different question, which is sort of like the present goes to the past. When you started your law career, you were 14 years old and you wanted to change things, but that was 29 years ago. And I'm wondering if you had a chance, knowing how the outcome is looking like, if you had the chance to talk to yourself when you were 14 and wanted to become a lawyer for your reasons, what kind of advice would you give to your own self?
1: Hmm. So what would my 58-year-old self want my 14-year-old self to know? Or my? how old was I when I started practicing law? 25, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think what I would want myself to know is that um, there's value in impacting lives beyond the value of making money or having a profession or, you know, you need to, you need to earn a living. So of course, right. You know, that's, that's part of why I think we all do what we do as adults in the workplace. But I didn't know then that I would touch as many lives as I, as I have. And that, I mean, for everybody who let me walk their journey with them, I'm so honored. I mean, It's incredible to have somebody let you into their personal life like that. So certainly that was true in the criminal um, side of things when I was working with crime victims. But, um, you know, even in the family law practice, I mean, people are are vulnerable. They're sharing, you know, incredibly personal and intimate details about their life um, with us and and trusting our firm and our, our staff with that. And that's... You know, it's very um, humbling uh, Mm -hmm. to to be in a position where um, people trust you like that and that you, you know, you do make an impact on them. And uh, like you said, I mean, there's people that um, from my earliest days of prosecution Mm -hmm. still keep in touch with me.
0: You can really make an impact in other people's lives, and you can Mm -hmm. feel great about that. And it's not about the money, but the money is nice.
1: Yeah, I think if you find um, a way to use to work in a way that's in alignment with your innate skills and Mm -hmm. your, you know, um, the value that you bring to the table, the money comes. You know, if you're doing what you're meant to do, the money comes. If it's when you're out of alignment. (laughs) That I think that either you have lots of money but you're not happy because it's not in alignment, or mm-hmm. you're doing something that is not in alignment with your true talents and your true values, um, and then you're, you're 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 never gonna be paid what you're worth if you're not using your worth. So mm-hmm. I think when everything's in alignment, then the finances just fall into place. I don't know. That sounds a little magical thinking, but it, I, I really believe that to be true.
0: I, I believe so as well like uh, to me it doesn't sound so magical as it sounds logical I was actually wondering have you ever felt like you were outside that line you like you were outside yourself and needed to recenter and if so how do you do that because I now imagine and I know I know a lot of lawyers I don't know why but many of them are in big law that they are earning a lot of money but at the same time they don't feel like they're being true to themselves and they're not happy with it. And they even dislike the lawyer profession when there are a lot of different routes. So if you were ever in a position like that, or if not, I do think that you can understand that situation and and, and empathize with that. What would you suggest to someone that's in that specific part of their journey?
1: Sometimes you need to be in the wrong positions to get very clear on what the right ones are. (laughs) So Um, I would have told you, um, well, i probably still tell you that there's a part of me that loves to be an educator, but in between my days in the district attorney's office and starting my own law practice, um, I worked for two years at the New York State Prosecutors um, Training Institute. Mm -hmm. So um, there's 62 county district attorney's offices in New York state, and uh, they pay dues to this association and the association um, developed a a company that is the training and support arm for all of the district attorneys statewide. So if a district attorney lacks a certain skill set. The Prosecutors Training Institute will find an attorney to loan to them for that particular case where they need a skill set if they need uh brief writing assistance for a difficult appeal or they need trial. Um, motion practice assistance so that organization does whatever it is to support and uh, the district attorneys around the state and help them succeed and they run regular training programs so. I kind of thought this was my dream because it took me out of the sort of the stress of dealing with high um high profile high emotional cases emotional component cases with the special victims unit, and I can train others like I learned a lot so I'm gonna share this and train a new generation of people who um are ready to go you know fill my shoes in the in the uh, courtrooms and i I nearly died like a a flower on a, on a plant that wasn't getting watered. I mean, I, I do love to teach, but I was not serving um, the kind of end user Mm -hmm. that made me, you know, want to get out of bed every day. So yes, I was training colleagues and I felt that was good work to do, but I just, it just wasn't, uh, it wasn't getting my juices flowing. I was stagnating. And um, I knew that I needed to get back to serving the the real end user. So in the in the prosecution world, I was dealing directly with the victims, and then I went into private practice, and I'm dealing directly with the clients who need help and who are going through, you know, a life challenge um, that I felt I could be helpful with. But I was, um, but it helped me get really clear because I thought I thought I'd love to teach. And so I can teach training courses, or I could provide assistance to district attorney's offices. Um, But I felt like I was sidelined, and I really needed to be in the trenches again. And so, you know, it was, um, it was a good experience, because it helped me see really where I want to put my skills to work, where my innate talents are of most use. Um, So it was a a two year learning experience for me and help me get clear on what i really want to do and where i really thrive. So i don't think there's any bad experiences if if you don't it's only a bad experience if you don't learn from it. So um yeah.
0: You know that's something that i wish i i i'd had yeah. like if i had a chance to learn from you uh at that level it would be Amazing because the opportunity to do that, and also knowing that it's a very short window, (laughs) two years. (laughs) But at the same time, it's well well, back to that question. What happens when you're you don't think or you don't feel that you're on the path? Well, you know, you know when you're not on the path, Mm -hmm. and might be able to get some very good stories, you might be able to impact the other people there. But I don't know why it's suddenly this phrase that that when I was in law school, one of my one of my teachers told me like. Uh, always serve a greater good or the greater good. Yeah, mm-hmm. but your greater good is not necessarily mine. When you're serving life and when you're serving people and you're addressing to the masses instead of just one by one or doing it as low as you can and draining the the, the wallet, I do think, at least from what I'm learning from you, your calling is to, or, or part of your work, I cannot dare to say what your calling is, but part of your work is to help the greater good because you're trying to help as many people as you can and do it in the best possible way without a fight. And if you have to go to a fight, something tells me that you're not cutthroat. And at the same time, that's something that I've learned from other lawyers. Like you can't be cutthroat. If you're like that all the time, everybody's going to shut their door in your face. Mm -hmm. So for up and coming lawyers that have that idea of it's either my way or the highway, what would you tell them?
1: so, um, I, I practice in a very small area. So, um, you know, you, reputation always, your reputation um, is always important. But if you get that reputation of being the one who's just difficult to be difficult, you know, and there are some of my colleagues that I, you know I, have you know in my brain a little bit of a groan when somebody tells me that's who their soon to be ex has engaged. I'm like, oh no, here we go. So <laughs> you don't want that reputation. You can be what you want is to be known. Uh, um, in in this field, as in the legal field, is to be competent, smart, confident. Um, you know, uh, an achiever of good results. But you don't want to be thought of as being difficult or. Um I don't know, but there's there's this uh, history, at least where I practice, where, you know,, pe- I think the lawyers thought that they had to behave like the pit bull in order to impress their clients. Mm-hmm. And I tell my clients, I'm going to be prepared. I'm going to be smart. I'm going to make good arguments in court, but I'm not going to be stomping my feet and slapping down my hand on the table and, and engaging in all sorts of intimidating or threatening antics in the courtroom just to put on a show for you, because that is not necessary and it's not who I am. And I will treat my colleague with respect, Um, but I'm going to, you know, I will be. I will fight a good fight and I will fight hard and and I will get you the best results I can possibly get. But if you hired me to put on some show, um, then you got the wrong lawyer. I'm not gonna do that. And I don't think I need to, you know, make my, I think I get more um, flies with honey when I'm negotiating with my colleagues across the aisle than I do because nobody wants to be bullied or intimidated um you get more pushback from your, your professional colleagues when you, you know, act that way. So I hope that um I think I when I entered the family law scene in my community, there were some seasoned attorneys, I would say in their 60s or 70s, who you know kind of came from that ilk and everybody revered them. So I hope for you know up and coming attorneys that they enter this with a different, you know, um, they choose different role models. (laughs) Cause Mm -hmm. I don't, I I was mentored by an attorney like that. Um, I learned good um, uh, information about the practice of matrimonial law. And I learned how not to conduct myself because it just isn't in alignment with my values to behave that way. Mm
0: -hmm. You know, that's something that also resonates a lot with me because I also think that there's a time and a place for everything. There might be a time and a place for you to stand up and put up that show, but if that's if I become a one pony uh, a, a, mm-hmm. a one pony trick, yeah, that's the same act that I do all the time. Then I get that rep. Right. And at the same time, there's this something's telling me like if I have to shout and yell and throw that antics and all those theatrics to get my point across, I'm not communicating myself adequately. So. <laughs> I hope that the next generation of lawyers, and I'm starting to see that maybe not so much as a trend, but at least I am looking at this with every single lawyer that I meet today. They don't want to carry that rep, So maybe that's a thing of the past or we can dose it to the specific time and a place for that. Mm-hmm. But that approach to being able to settle things, just that, just that approach, being able to settle things without having to fight, it moves everything faster. Mm-hmm. Now. When you have to get your point across, when you have to go to trial, when you have to object, when you have to fight, then, of course, go ahead, go at it. But don't, I, what I'm getting at this is, don't let that become your true persona, because I'm thinking that's something that you also drag to your personal life.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there's a, a time and a place for righteous indignation or, you know, outrage about conduct or something like that. So if the other party in the case has done something egregious, then you know there's a, a there's a, a time and a place to say, you know, that is outrageous, that is unacceptable, and you know to to be dramatic about some of that stuff. Um, but um, I feel like being um, Efficient and effective is more important than being having the dramatic there. Um, so, it, you know, that's just how I am. But it's interesting that interpersonally, um, I really avoid conflicts. Like in my personal life, I do not like conflicts. And it's probably because I see so much of it and I see so much of it as wasted energy. Um, and, it, you know, it, it it people spin their wheels. It protracts things. It sometimes makes things more painful and not less painful to stir up the conflict. So um, not Um I have a thirty two year um, relationship um, uh, with my husband and a happy family and um, haven't had to go through any of the stuff that my clients um, go through. But yeah, I have peace at home <laughs> and I avoid conflict outside of the workplace because uh, it's what I live with a lot of the time with my cases.
0: Well, I imagine it's a very peaceful uh, dinner table. So that must be very rewarding. That that was actually kind of, uh, I, I, I'm starting to head towards the closing of today's recording, but I was wondering how does someone like you with that story and 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 that type of character, celebrate a good win. Maybe a good win is everybody was okay with it and we settled on the first try, or it was a very long battle, but at the end, but in the end, nobody got hurt. How do you uh, take that take take the edge of? What's your like your ritual for celebration? I don't know if you have one though. I don't
1: know if I have a ritual, or maybe if if I do, I'm not even aware of it. It's so ingrained, but um. <clears throat> it's um it, it's an interesting thing like when you have a big win um sometimes the clients have a delayed reaction to that like they have to really take it all in i mean sometimes they're outside the courthouse going oh my god that was amazing thank you and maybe we'll go to lunch and maybe we'll uncork a bottle of champagne you know that kind of thing um with the client um but uh personally um I'm not sure I have a ritual. Um, Yeah, I don't know.
0: Hey, maybe you don't need one.
1: Yeah, I don't, you know, because I think that um, I don't know. It's uh, how to put it in words. It's it's bittersweet, I think, um, because you know you are helping a client, but they're you know there's often at the same time that they're celebrating there's also that that there may be tears of, wow, I'm finally divorced, you know, frequently when they're signing the settlement papers even though they're like, thank God I'm settling this and I'm thrilled with the way that this is being settled. There's some sadness. So it's a little bit of a mixed bag for the clients because it's marking the closure of something that, you know, no one walks down the aisle thinking, if this doesn't work out, it's not a big deal. You know, you walk down the aisle thinking, I'm going to have the house with the white picket fence and two children and you know, a cat in the yard and a, you know, and a dog and, you know, that kind of thing. And when it Very all crumbles, yeah, you had yeah, 2.3 children, right? And it's like the, the nationwide average. So um <clears throat> it's, it's sad. It's the loss of a dream. I mean, everybody dreams about that life. Uh, so it's, it's kind of weird to, to celebrate that, but. um Yeah, you're right. Yeah. You know,
0: now that you say it, it's, It helps you build a character. It certainly does. And I don't know, you just said something that was, sometimes it takes the client some time to process what's going on. Maybe that also happens with the lawyers on the other end. Mm -hmm. Because it's maybe it's a short one, maybe it's a long one, but for it to actually sink in and for that knowledge to become yours, for you to assimilate it, and then you can use it on another case or in another situation Mm -hmm. maybe that's the win maybe that's the celebration being able to grow from that not necessarily a specific ritual or let's to go to this one place where i always celebrate my wins maybe it's not about that it's just about the profession itself and how you deal with it how you embrace it and how you come to love it which is my final question would you say that you love what you do
1: yeah, I mean, I think that there's aspects um, that are, you know, certainly stressful. Um, days that are easier <laughs> and days that are harder than others, but um, in the end, uh, it feels really, really good. I mean, there's um, we get a lot of handwritten thank you cards from uh, current and former clients. Um, you know, talking about how critical it was that they had the right law firm and the right staff, you know, helping them through a difficult thing. And, um, we celebrate those in our, you know, team meetings and, uh, we're a remote team, um, spread out all across the globe. So, um, I'm fortunate when we're dealing uh, with clients who have to go to court or want to come in person to mediation to actually be able to to meet people. But many of the staff are meeting them only virtually by Zoom or Google Meet or something. So it's really nice when we get a personalized thank you, and, and you know we read them aloud on the in the team meetings, and I, often they'll call out particular team members for so and so was so helpful, and I don't know what I would have done without so and so. So that's a big part of. Why we're all in this and helping us, even though we're dispersed around the globe, to feel like we are a unified team that are working together to really make a difference in people's lives.
0: You know, just an observation when I asked if you love what you do, your answer led <laughs> you directly to your team and acknowledging everybody that works there uh, all across the globe. So that was badass. <laughs> <laughs> Well,
1: no, it's not all me. We, we certainly reach a lot of people and it takes a lot of um, my, minds and hands and hearts to uh, deliver the services that we deliver. And, um, you know, it's it's I know the law firm carries my name. I probably should have named it something else, but it's really not. It's not me. It's we are a culture of um, committed individuals uh, that, you know, come together to do the good work that we do.
0: And good work it is. Uh, Deborah, you know, I can probably keep going for at least two or three more hours. I could. I have no problems with that. I would ask a ton of questions, but I do want to be very respectful of your time. So as we're uh, growing to an end, I'd like to ask one final thing, which is, can you please let people know where they can find you and what you can do for them?
1: I would be glad to do that. So my law firm is Whitson Law Firm. You can find us at whitsonlawfirm.com. I also have a separate mediation company. It's called Mediated Online Solutions find us at Solutions.com. And both of those entities are on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, um, you know, all the places you might expect, uh, LinkedIn, Twitter. So uh, witsonlawfirm.com and mediatedonlinesolutions.com.
0: Well, thank you very much, Deborah. Uh, it was a true pleasure and honor meeting you. I really enjoyed our conversation. And I'm wondering if there's anything else you'd like to say before we log off?
1: Just quickly, I am very... um proud of the fact that recently I published my first book, it's called Divorce Like a Pro, A Better Way to Break Up. It's available on Amazon and it talks about all of the options you have, including going to court if you have no other option available to you. Uh, But it discusses the difference between mediation, collaboration and other alternative dispute resolution um, modalities and why I feel that that is so important for people to consider trying before they get to the courthouse um so it's online at amazon.com and available on kindle uh, divorce like a pro
0: <laughs> you know when you first mentioned the book uh, in my head i was like why don't i know this or why didn't i know it before <laughs> uh, don't worry we're going to cross promote it of course and i'm also going to get a copy myself yeah uh, <laughs> you know i like lawyers you know i'm a lawyer and i admire lawyers and i like the way that you work so i'm imagining that what you said in there it's probably very strong stuff so Thank you very much. We'll make sure that everybody knows. And thank you for being a guest in today's episode.
1: Thanks for having me, Joe. I really appreciate your questions. It was great having this dialogue with you.
0: I enjoyed it as well. Well, guys, see you next time for another episode of Law Firm Movers and Shakers. Thank you, everyone, for listening to Law Firm Movers and Shakers where we interview successful law firms and business owners. If you found anything interesting during our latest episode, feel free to share. If you know someone that would make an awesome guest, tag them on any of our social media. You can also tag me on any post or guest suggestion, and I'll share a free resource with you. If you found the show entertaining, show it by subscribing, giving us a thumbs up, a rating, or a review. This means the world to us. Want to know more? Visit our website at getstaffedup.com and make sure you follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just look for Get Staffed Up. Visit podcast.getstaff.com slash podcast dash guest to be on our show. Thank you for listening. This is Joe signing off.